This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. We're reading Acts 15, starting in verse 22, going through 35. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we've heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have, therefore, sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were, with, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with so many others also. Good morning, church. So I always joke that if I was going to become a computer hacker, it would be for one reason and one reason only, and that would be for the sole purpose of crashing the website Pinterest. (laughs) So Pinterest creates a lot of work for me, a lot of projects, and a lot of things that take a lot of time. And so that's exactly the thing that I would pursue crashing if I were a computer hacker is Pinterest. But Angela has learned after nearly 15 years of marriage that when she brings me one of these projects, generally my response is this. She said, I'll say, I can do that project, but I need some sort of tool. Sometimes it's just a ploy. But most of the time I actually need, I actually need the tool because the right tool for the job makes all the difference in the world. So I'm sure all of you have experienced being up on a ladder and needing to hammer a nail in and only having pliers in your pocket and trying to take the back end of that, like to nail in the nail. It just, it doesn't work very well. A hammer is supposed to nail a nail, not pliers. Uh, I was there two summers ago. So two summers ago, I built a deck on the back of our house and there was just this small little concrete step or so it seemed before I started trying to demolish said concrete step. So I started, I have a sledgehammer in my garage. I'm like, it's just a little step. We'll just take a couple whacks at it. It'll be great. That was not the right tool for the job or my back. Uh, so 
Okay, let's move on to an angle grinder. We'll cut some lines in the concrete. Then we'll take the sledgehammer and take it out. Well, burnt up an angle grinder. That obviously wasn't the right tool. All right, jump in the car, go to Home Depot. I'm going to rent a jackhammer. Tell the guy what I'm doing. Okay, this is the one you need. He rents me the smallest jackhammer. You probably can see where this is going. It gets stuck and breaks in about the first five minutes of demolishing said step. Uh, so I went back to Home Depot and said, okay, no more messing around. I want the biggest jackhammer that you have. And I want it for the day because it might take a while and busted it up. Because uh, the right tool for the job makes all the difference in the world. That's true of building. It's even more true in waging war. And make no mistake, we are in spiritual warfare all of the time. And I'm sure you've heard the phrase, don't bring a knife to a gunfight, for that very purpose, right? It won't go well for you if you bring a knife to a gunfight. So the question is, what is the right tool, what is the right weapon to fight the enemy with? That's our question this morning. How do we fight the attacks of the enemy? How do we fight his attacks? Here's our big idea for this morning from Acts 15. It's this. I will fight the attack of the enemy with the gospel. I will fight the attack of the enemy with the gospel. We're back in Acts this morning after a few weeks off to celebrate Easter and Palm Sunday. So let's remind ourselves of where we are in the book of Acts. So there was this council that was happening in Jerusalem, church leaders, apostles gathering together to make a decision. It was the first one in the history of the church. They were there because the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers were having a disagreement. The Jewish believers were telling the Gentiles, you need to be circumcised. You need to follow all of the law of Moses. And so they got together to discuss this. After some discussion and debate, They determined, no, Gentiles, you don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to keep the entire law of Moses. But you do need to live with your brothers in mind. Think of your Jewish brothers as you live out your Christian faith. So that's where we left off. And now we're here in verses 22 to 33 and 35. Did you catch that as we were reading? There is no verse 34. So why in the world is verse 34 gone in your ESV specifically? Some of your translations might have it. I'll explain that in a minute. So let's just get this out of the way first. So do you know that your chapters and verses in your Bible weren't actually coming into clarity until around the 17th century? The translation of the Geneva Bible, which shortly was followed by the translation of the King James Bible, put the verses and chapters to help us navigate our Bibles better. Uh, The King James Bible specifically was translated in 1611. It was a phenomenal feat for the time that it was translated. They did an amazing job with the resources that they had, but they didn't have the internet. They didn't even have access to the best manuscripts that were even available in their day. And, but they still did an amazing job overall. But the lack of verse 34 in your ESV was kind of created by the King James translators. So uh, why did they create this issue? Well, they, in this specific portion, used a newer manuscript that's less reliable than the older manuscripts. We always favor older manuscripts because they're closer to the actual time of translation. And they only had access in translating this portion of Acts to a newer, uh, less great uh, manuscript. So 
in it had verse 34. They put verse 34. Now you have verse 34 living in infamy in your footnotes in the ESV. Most of your translations should footnote that uh, there. So uh, the KJV, again, is a really good translation, but there are a few textual issues that come up within it. This is one of those issues just because of the, the information they were working with at the time in 1611. It, it should give you no uh, lack of doubt for your, you should not doubt your Bible, I should say, uh, but, or the credibility of your Bible. Uh, it's a very small thing. It affects no theology, nothing like that, and it's very clearly seen uh, as we study textual criticism, but there you go. If you have any more questions about that, I love to geek out on stuff like that, so come see me. We'll talk, we'll talk through it, but hopefully that clears up why verse 34 is gone for you. Okay, so Jerusalem Council, no circumcision, no law, but think of your Jewish brothers. That's where we are. That's where we launch from today. So let's look at our first point from the text. It's three weapons of the enemy, three weapons of the enemy. The first weapon is this. Doctrine. Doctrine is the first weapon of the enemy. And already some of you are like, what in the world? Doctrine is a a weapon of the enemy. Let me just start by saying this, okay? This sermon is going to seek to balance some things that in a Bible-preaching, Reformed, loving church we can err in. It is no, in no way a uh, movement on our part. I love theology. That's not changing. We're not moving anywhere, but we are seeking to balance grace and truth. And in a Bible preaching, loving church like our own, we can often err on the side of truth and miss grace. Look at John 1 14. And the word became flesh, that's Jesus, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth. As Christians, we're trying to become more like Jesus, so we should be seeking to balance grace and truth at the same time, correct? We good? All right, let's move. All right, look back at verse 22. Verse 22 says this, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas leading men among the brothers. With the following letter, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Why not just write a letter and send one guy to deliver it? That, that was the practice of the day. You write a letter, you get a courier, he takes it to the place, and on you go. Why have Paul and Barnabas and Judas and Silas? Why? It's simple. There were false teachers that were spreading false doctrine. And the church leaders were so worried that that was going to take root in the early church that they sent four guys to hit it head on. To make sure that that didn't happen. To make sure that the believers in Antioch got the exact message that they were sending. To give it validity, they sent four guys. Look at verse 25. I'll prove it to you. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. 
men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So they're really elevating Barnabas and Paul, saying these are guys who have risked their lives. We love these guys. And then it goes on. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. So Judas and Silas are from Antioch. These are people that they actually knew. And so they were a part of the Jerusalem council. So they're like, okay, you two, they, you can affirm the message and everything that's happening. Paul and Barnabas, you're leaders in the church. And so you guys all go together and make sure that they get this message. They weren't taking any risks with false doc- with this false doctrine. They didn't want it to take root. They were protecting the one true gospel as it was spreading by clearly speaking out against false teaching. But notice what they don't speak against directly here. They don't name the false teachers. They had every opportunity to do that. More than likely, they knew who they were. They knew who was spreading the message. It was a small enough movement at this point that they knew people were coming out from them that they hadn't sent out. Verse 24 tells us, although we gave them no instructions, they didn't send them out. They probably knew who they were. But they don't attack that. They attack the, the theology itself. They attack the doctrine itself. Is that how we approach false teaching? Before you say it, yes, I know there are other passages in Scripture that false teachers are thrown under the bus, but that's not always the case. And always, even when that's happening, it's a, to see them repent. It's a heart to see repentance happen among them. And I think in a church like ours, a Bible-teaching church, there is a massive danger And I know it's a danger because I talk to people all the time that are struggling with this. Our pastors and our elders talk to people all the time or having conversations with people who are unintentionally wielding doctrine as a brutal weapon. If we're honest, most of you are probably in this church because we do the very thing that I'm doing right now. We open the word. We exposit it to you. We help you try to live it out. We are passionate, passionate about the word of God. We're committed to pressing the Bible into your life. But there's the danger. What are we pressing, really? Are we pressing doctrine for the sake of doctrine? Or are we pressing doctrine for the sake of loving Jesus? There's a big difference. I love doctrine. I do. I love it. I'm passionate about it. I want to know and understand the Bible. I want to know how to use it. I want to know how to wield it like the weapon it should be. I want to be able to face my challengers with the truth of the the Bible. I want to be able to put those false teachers in their place when they need to be put there. But do you see how subtly that just became all about me? What I want to do. What I want to understand. Doctrine must drive us to Jesus. Doctrine must drive us to Jesus. If your doctrine is leading you to more fights with people than it does awe and worship of Jesus, you aren't teaching doctrine the right way. Look, I'm not saying don't defend doctrine. 
I'm for sure not saying doctrine isn't important. But I am saying that doctrine has an end goal, and that end goal is Jesus Christ and our adoration of him. If we're honest, as Christians, we embraced cancel culture long before that became a thing in Hollywood. We've been all about cancel culture for a long time. And I can almost see the anger welling up in some of you. So let me explain what I mean. Think Ravi Zacharias, Mark Driscoll, James McDonald, Bill Hybels. These are all men who in the last couple of years have fallen hard. Moral failures, leadership abuse, bad stuff, terrible things, sinful things. So what do we do as Christians? We throw it all out. Every sermon ever preached, every church ever planted, every conference I was ever at where they spoke, it's all gone because they struggled with this other thing. And even more than that, they can never, ever, in most of our minds, be restored as a leader. Never can that happen. Now, I'm not standing up here suggesting that any of these men are repentant or are not repentant in this moment right now. That's not the point. I'm not advocating for that or not. But what I am advocating for is the fact that the Jesus I love and serve and see here embraced sinners. The Jesus I follow is in the business of making the old new. He's got a strong, strong track record of producing growth in sinful, wretched people that seems outside of my wildest dreams. The Jesus I follow can restore a fallen leader. And this is just one example of how often we wield doctrine in a brutal sort of way. Because we miss the gospel. We miss the chance for forgiveness. Good doctrine leads us there because it embraces the gospel. It presses us into Jesus. I mean, look at Peter. He denied the Savior, betrayed him in his hardest hour. He struggled with potentially letting false teaching come into the church. We see that interaction with him and Paul at the beginning of the book of Galatians. And what did God do? He still used Peter in massive ways. Is the gospel you embrace big enough for that? Do your discussions of doctrine more often lead people to be in awe of Jesus or frustrated with you? In your pursuit of knowing more about God, is your relationship with him actually deeper or is your head just more full of stuff? And how often do we attack the false teacher more than we attack the the false teaching itself? Doctrine can unintentionally become brutal. We need to balance that with the grace and mercy that we've been shown in our Savior Jesus. So three weapons of the enemy. The first is doctrine. The second is this disunity. Disunity. 
So why, why send four guys with a letter? Why weren't Paul and Barnabas enough? Well, look at verse 23. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. They wanted to be sure that this letter wasn't going to be misunderstood. They're sending it to multiple groups of people. We'll see as the book of Acts progresses, this letter actually gets even more traction than this one group. But they wanted to give validity to what was happening. Because there was this massive rift between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. So much so that the Gentile believers saw it as insurmountable. We're never going to be able to fellowship together. I mean, think about what they were being asked to do. Get circumcised, not real appealing. Uh, do all of the works of the law. So you got to change how you eat. You got to change how you worship. You got to change where you worship. All of these things were being laid on them and heaped on them. And we're like, we can't do that. Which is actually the point of the law, right? We can't keep it. So we need Jesus. It felt very much to those Gentile believers. Like how, how is this ever going to work for us to be one body, one Church, one group of Christians, they were burdened by the need to keep the law. And false doctrine, even right doctrine improperly wielded, leads to disunity. I think there are two major dangers to unity in a church like ours. The first one is something you hear us talk about a lot. It's not dealing with conflict in a biblical manner. So somebody offends you, somebody sins against you, and you tell everybody but that person, or you just sit on it and never deal with it, that's not healthy. You need to go face-to-face with them, seeking unity, not Facebook-to-Facebook with them, not text message. Go face-to-face and talk it through with them. That's what Matthew 18 would call us to. That's That's the first danger. The second danger, though, is improperly elevating doctrine. Improperly elevating doctrine. If we fight every issue and everyone who has a different belief on something on the same level, we are erring. Not everything should be fought with the same amount of veracity. Rupertus Meldinius said this, I'm sure you've heard this quote, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. So what in the world does that look like? Well, I was actually taught this concept in seminary, something similar. Uh, We've been teaching it in our church for quite a while. And then I actually read this book last year um, called Finding the Right Hills to Die On by Dane Ortland, and it helped kind of further even refine some of this thinking. So let me just kind of walk you through a helpful paradigm. So there are four sort of levels of our beliefs. So the first is essentials. These are things that you either must affirm to be a Christian or that you must never deny to be a believer in Jesus Christ. These are things I'm holding like this. They're never going anywhere. I'm dying on that hill. We are going to throw down about it, and I'm okay with that. It's the, the gospel. It is the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man. 
These are examples of things that are in here that I'm holding firmly. If I don't believe in these things, I won't actually even be a believer in Jesus Christ. They're that essential. Then we get primary doctrines. These are doctrines that are extremely clear in Scripture and have a large impact on many other doctrines. So these are things like the sovereignty of God. Do I have to fully understand the sovereignty of God to be a believer in Jesus Christ? No, I don't. But it massively impacts so many other things. And it is so clear in Scripture when you look at who God is, that he is a God who is sovereign over all. So these are things that are going to make it tough for us to fellowship together if we don't agree on these sorts of things. Now, it's not an issue of salvation or not, not salvation. So people can believe differently about them and still be saved. But we may not be able to fellowship in close unity uh, because of those things. And then we get to secondary doctrines. These are doctrines that are less clear in Scripture and have a small impact on other doctrines. Okay, so these are not less important they're less clear. There's a difference. All doctrine is important. We should be in pursuit of all doctrine. Why? Because it helps us understand God better, which should help us love Jesus more. But there are things that are less clear in Scripture. If you get 10 people in a room and you ask them, what do you believe about the end times? You're probably going to get at least five answers. And the other five people going, I don't know. That's in that one book that has lots of stuff that I don't understand. And we should pursue the knowledge of what God is going to do in the end. There's a whole book of the Bible devoted to it. But at the end of the day, what I view about the end times and what somebody else might view doesn't impact as many other doctrines as some other things do. And so it's less clear. So let's not fight about those things to the same degree that we fight about the gospel. And then we get to the last category, which is preferences. These are matters that the Bible speaks very little about, if at all. And they're issues that pertain more to what I like or dislike that the Bible is really unclear or silent on. So what kind of music should we play? What color should our chairs be? Should we meet in this kind of building or that kind of building? There are th These things just really aren't even addressed directly in Scripture, there are principles that undergird some of those things, but so many of those things are preference. Like, I just like gray. That's why we have gray chairs. <laughs> He's colorblind. It doesn't matter. <laughs> so this is a helpful paradigm for us to think through. Because if everything in our brains rises to essential, we're going to fight about everything all the time. That's not healthy. It's also not healthy to not fight about essentials. Like, I want to fight for the truth of the gospel. It's worth it. But I was, I was the guy and still very much have the propensity to be the guy who fights for every doctrinal thing because I love doctrine. But let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story about my best friend growing up. His name was Zach. He was the best man in my wedding. He was in the youth group that I was in. And we spent a lot of time together uh, all throughout really junior high, high school, and into college. But... Uh, 
about our second year into college, Zach started to ask a lot of questions about his upbringing in Christianity. He started to struggle with a lot of things. And as he was doing that, I was learning deep things about theology. I was really embracing Reformed theology for the first time. And uh, everyone around me probably knew that was true because I was telling them all. And I ended up fighting Zach on issues like limited atonement and irresistible grace on sovereignty versus free will. And what happened is Zach grew bitter at those conversations and we just stopped talking about God altogether. Because he didn't want to fight. And I like a good debate. And since then, Zach has left Christianity altogether. And some of you who are struggling with the very issue I struggle with are sitting there saying, well, that means he was never really saved. Yes, I theologically agree with you, but that's not the point. What Zach really needed looking back was to know that God loved him fiercely by sending his son Jesus. I was pressing deep doctrinal issues into a situations that didn't require it and certainly didn't benefit from it. And I'm not sitting here suggesting I'm the reason Zach left the faith. My God's bigger than that. But what I am saying is I missed an opportunity to plead with him, to press Christ into him in the way that I should have. Because I was too worried he might become an Arminian. I was too worried he might not affirm the doctrine of election. Or he might think a little differently about the sovereignty of God. That I miss Jesus. That's a big error. Doctrinal issues are important, but they're not more important than the gospel. So what are we fighting most for, church? Are we fighting most for people to passionately love Reformed theology? Or are we passionately pressing them into loving Jesus Christ? Does your pressing of doctrine into people's life press them closer to Jesus? Or further away? Do your theological positions make you unsympathetic to real life issues people are walking through? Does it make it hard for you to sit in the muck and the mire of people who have real doubts and real questions to sit through that and walk with them? So much so that you're willing to let a few theological things slide in a moment so that you can press Christ into them. We can get to doctrine. We, we will press that into them eventually. But if they miss the gospel, what's the point? We can create a great amount of disunity by wielding doctrine in a brutal sort of way. And the reverse is true. We can create a great amount of unity by pressing people into doctrine in such a way that they love Jesus more. See, we're not talking about abandoning doctrine. That's not changing. But what we are talking about, again, is what is the end goal of it? To just know more about the Bible? The devil knows the Bible. He doesn't love Jesus. Three weapons of the enemy. Doctrine. Is the first. Disunity is the second. And the third is discouragement. 
Look at verse 24. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. They were troubled. They had unsettled minds. What's the main concern of why they're sending this letter? Is it naming and blasting the false teachers? Is it hashing through the nuance of the theological error? No, it's the heart of the believers that is on their minds. They were troubled. This means to to shake up or disturb. It's used to agitate a crowd. They They were uncomfortable so much so by these things that were being leveled and heaped on them. It's the unsettling of their minds. It means to dismantle or to tear down. It's this idea of causing inward distress. These people were distraught, these Gentile believers. David Peterson said this, any teaching that compromises the simple message of the gospel will rob Christians of their assurance and leave them feeling confused. The Jews were adding to the gospel. And it was leaving the Gentile believers with a weight because the law doesn't bring freedom. Only the true gospel can bring freedom and life. Gentiles were discouraged. Again, they felt like there was no path to unity with these people. They, they didn't know what to do. And this was why the early church leaders felt so strongly that they had to hit this issue head on. They knew that freedom in Christ was at stake. And when you try to live under the law, it's not very free. But when we live in our freedom in Christ, man, how much that changes everything. This was what was at stake for the Gentile believers. The enemy uses these things. He wants you to be discouraged. He wants us to be disunited. He wants us to improperly wield doctrine. He's been doing these things since the beginning. Go all the way back to Genesis. These are the tricks he's been using all along. Three weapons of the enemy. But let's look at this, the gospel solution, the gospel solution. All right, read. Let your eyes fall back on verse 28. Verse 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Wait, what? What? Isn't the very thing that they were trying to combat the whole idea of laying all these extra things on these believers? And now the content of the letter, the, the really the meat of it is kind of seems like it's adding to the gospel. So to understand what's really going on here, let's get a little deeper into the mind of Paul, who was one of the authors of the letter there for sure. Turn in your Bibles over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. First Corinthians chapter eight, verse one says this. 
Now concerning food offered to idols, sound familiar? We're talking about the same thing. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore... If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Flip over to chapter 10, starting in verse 23. He continues his argument here by saying, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So follow Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians. It's not about meat. It's not about how it's cooked or how it was killed. It's about your brother. It's about their conscience. So sometimes the gospel solution involves me limiting my freedoms. It involves me limiting my 
freedoms. The fundamental question you have to answer in issues of liberty is this. Does this hinder the gospel or does this propel the gospel forward? Does it hinder the gospel or does it propel the gospel forward? Let's be really honest. We struggle with this as Americans, as American citizens. I have my rights. I got my freedoms. Don't tread on me. Don't tread on my rights. But if willingly laying down some of your rights would progress the gospel, would you do it? Yeah, yeah, okay. But this was just some meat. We're not talking about like really big things. Except this wasn't just any meat. This was the best cuts of meat because you had to bring the best that you had to offer to these idols. And so even the leftovers was the choicest meat that you could buy anywhere. It's like giving up and saying, I will never, ever eat that really, really good steak ever again for the sake of the gospel. That'd be really hard for me. I'm a carnivore at heart for sure. Paul was advocating giving up something really, really good for the sake of the gospel. Not some leftover thing, which I think we can read that and kind of think, yeah, well, it's just a leftover meat. Like, no, that's th- the best of the best. That's what Paul is advocating for. We've wrestled through a lot of this stuff in the last two years as believers. Issues related to the pandemic, masking and vaccines and lockdowns. I'm sure you maybe have wrestled through this even in terms of alcohol. The Bible says don't get drunk. Okay, so what does that mean in terms of what we do as believers? You might be wrestling through that right now in terms of maybe Disney. I don't know. But the question is, when we wrestle and we make our determinations about these things, which lens are we looking through? Are we looking through the lens of our American rights? Or are we looking through the lens of what progresses the gospel? If progressing the gospel required you to wear a mask, would you? How about a vaccine? What American right would you never be willing to give up for the sake of the gospel? Why? Look, these these things are all just examples. I'm not standing up here suggesting that you need to do any of them. Don't walk out of the saying, Pastor Adam said you gotta. No, that's not what that's not what I'm saying. I'm using them as examples. But what I'm asking you is this: Is the mission of gospel unity greater than your American rights? it should be. And I think it's a real struggle for us. I face this temptation. I don't like people to tell me what to do. Because at the end of the day, it requires us to humble ourselves and think more about somebody else than I think about myself. It's our pride. So sometimes the gospel solution requires us to limit our freedoms But there is also tremendous encouragement of unity in the gospel. Look at verse 30. Back in Acts 15, verse 30. 
So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. So the four guys go, they give the letter to the people at Antioch, and here's what happened. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. That struck me as funny the first time I read this text this week. Wait, wait. So what you're telling me is you just told me all the things that I can't do, and they rejoiced because that was an encouragement. That's weird. Didn't they just limit their freedoms, and, and somehow that's encouraging to them? Well, it would be if unity in the gospel is your goal. Okay, think back to the situation. There was this massive rift between the two of them that they didn't know how they were going to get over. And what they just said is, you know, you don't have to be circumcised. I'm sure they're rejoicing because of that part. But they're also saying you don't have to live under the law anymore. Just do these couple things for the good of your brother and look, unity can come. That's massive to them. They had this massive weight that they'd never really be united with the Jewish believers because of all these rules and regulations being placed on them. This was just the news that they needed. The gospel is the thing, but here's how you can consider your brothers. When unity on the gospel and how to love your brothers and sisters became became clear to them, it brought rejoicing and it brought encouragement to them. Sacrificing for gospel unity should do that for us. It should be a joy for us to lay down our desires for the good of other people. But does it? We all have lots of stories of when you begrudgingly go to do something, you're like, I got to go to that wedding. Uh." And then you go and you see the bride and groom and it's, a fun experience and your even your mar- own marriage gets renewed because you just think back to your wedding day and all of those things and you walk away encouraged. Think, I look at my calendar and say, oh man, my, another kid's baseball game, another kid's softball game, uh, and then they go and they have a blast and they get a good hit and all of these things and they're rejoicing and all of a sudden it's an encouraging thing for you to see them having fun. And yet these things pale in comparison or at least they should, to the unity we find in the gospel. Sunday after Sunday, week after week, I get the tremendous joy of standing on the stage in some way, shape, or form, usually in leading you in worship. And I I get to stand here and have the best seat in the house and see people that I talk to throughout the week and know that they're hurting and struggling and see them lifting high the name of Jesus anyways. It's a tremendous joy. I get the joy of sitting across the table or sitting in small group and walking with people who are hurting. But that often takes personal sacrifice, time, talent, treasure, emotional weight that you carry. But let me tell you, there is no greater joy than seeing people who are struggling have those light bulb moments of, yeah, but Jesus is better. There's nothing 
more worthy. There's nothing that's going to bring you more joy than just seeing God work and move and seeing his glory on display. So the question for us as a church this morning is this. Can we pursue loving people to Jesus through our doctrine? Are we willing to lay down our lives and our rights for the sake of people loving Jesus more? Is it possible that to love your neighbor, you may have to love yourself just a little bit less or maybe a whole lot less? And can we commit as a church to fighting the enemy with the beauty of the gospel more than anything else? Let's ask him for his help in that. God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you how it impacts us, how it changes us, how it challenges us. Thinking through this text, I was laid bare this week just thinking of how often I fight for doctrine more than I fight for the love of Jesus in people's life. How I err on the side of not balancing truth with grace. God, we need your help to balance that. It's a hard, hard balance. So often we err on one side or the other and struggle to be right in the center, being full of both as Jesus was. So we're asking for your help to balance that better. We're asking for your help to not make doctrine a brutal weapon to be wielded, but make it something that joyfully points us to a Savior who loves us and gives richness and fullness to that love because of who he is as we understand more who he is through his word. We need your Spirit's help in that. Forgive us when we err, and help us run to the truth of that gospel when we do. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thank you, church. You are left.